0: beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know for this reason when I could bear it no longer I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain this is the word of the Lord Thanks Thanks God. and you may be seated Well, as the Apostle Paul takes Quill in hand, he pens an uncharacteristically brief greeting, just mentioning the names of himself and Silas and Timothy, and then immediately begins thanking God for all that has transpired regarding these saints. For the first time since he was forced to leave the city of Thessalonica, he can breathe a sigh of relief. He's overjoyed by the good news that he has received, and this has compelled him to respond post-haste with words of encouragement, and that's what he does. And in the first half of the letter, just to remind you, he rehearses the visit that he has to Thessalonica and all of the theological significance of everything that is followed. Paul attributes the mission's success to God and God alone. But he also acknowledges the secondary means by which the Lord accomplishes his will. The converts in Thessalonica were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. They were predestined to be counted among the elect. The number appointed unto salvation in that city was determined before that city ever existed. Before the world existed. Indeed, before the dawn of time. They were determined in eternity past in the counsel of our triune God. Nonetheless, Paul had to preach the word and they had to receive God's word in order for that salvation to be realized. You see, as creatures created with volition, what we do and how we live matters. We make choices for which we're responsible. And though we're constrained by our nature, we do make those choices freely. And one day we will give an account of the deeds done in the body, says the scripture. And yet, none of this occurs outside of God's sovereign control. We can never thwart the Lord's holy plan. He not only ordains the means, he also ordains the the, the, the ends, excuse me, but he also endorses, and, and he ordains the means by which those ends are realized. All right. Uh, forgive my tongue-tiedness this morning. In other words, what I want you to see is that he not only determines the destination, he also determines the path that leads to that destination. He determines those who will walk that particular path And he determines every detail along the route that brings them to that destination. This is divine concurrence. That while we are thinking we are uh, accomplishing what we intend, God is working in those same events to accomplish what he intends. And what he intends always prevails. So, one of the prime examples is Christ and him crucified. Jesus not only had to die on the cross, he couldn't die on the cross just any way. He had to be delivered up by a conspiracy of nations with evil intentions. Why? Because his death not only secured the salvation of his people, it validated God's righteous judgment in consigning the wicked rebels of this world to eternal condemnation. And so, though God has chosen those who would be saved... There were means that the Lord has ordained by which they will answer the call to the gospel. Paul, if you'll remember, had been battered and shamefully treated. He says this himself. I was shamefully treated in Philippi all before arriving in this city. And despite encountering even more hostility when he arrives in Thessalonica, he was persistent in his mission. He didn't give up. He didn't say, well, this isn't worth it. Too much opposition here. No, his obedient preaching of the gospel in the face of that opposition was the means that God ordained by which he would call these saints to faith in Christ. In Romans 10, the apostle Paul lays out these means in a series of necessary God-ordained actions which lead to salvation. It's a passage you know. Yes, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That is the truth. But Paul says, how will they call upon him in whom they have not believed? And then how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? Do you see? There's an entire chain of events here, all prescribed by God as the means whereby he brings salvation to his people. These are the ordinary means God has ordained. So Paul had to preach. As for the Thessalonians, the Lord God quickened the hearts of the elect so that upon hearing that gospel, they would believe and receive the gospel as God's word. And he also ordained that the faith of these young converts be tested to prove the genuineness of their conversion. So not only that they would hear and that they would believe, but then that faith would be tested. And he decreed that that faith be tested early and often. How early? Well, there was intense opposition towards anyone who even lent an ear to the gospel. So from the very beginning. And how often? Well, from Paul's letter, it seems to me that it's clear. The persecution was not only relentless, but it was growing in intensity. So God not only ordained that these saints hear the gospel from a battered yet determined apostle Paul, he decreed that they then endure much affliction in their reception of that gospel. And what's more? These enemies of the cross at the instigation of the evil one were the means whereby the faith of these saints was proven to be genuine. You see, Paul didn't know the identity of the elect, and neither do we. And that's why we preach the gospel to everyone. It was the Thessalonians' active faith and their enduring love and their steadfast hope in the midst of much affliction that gave Paul the confidence to call them brothers, loved and chosen by God. And so while Thessalonica was a great triumph for the kingdom of heaven, there was much creaturely drama involved in realizing that victory. The fledgling congregation experienced the pain of affliction in the form of economic perse- persecution and pressure, and even more devastatingly, they felt the sting of being ostracized by their fellow countrymen. As for Paul, he felt the agony of opposition, he felt the fatigue of working day and night, and he felt the anguish of being separated from these newborn babes in Christ. And so as Paul puts pen to paper, we can sense the relief with which he writes. He's excited. The words seem to flow out of him effortlessly as one thought races toward another. He moves from thanksgiving for their faith and example to a defense of his ministry among them, and now to how much he has missed these saints who are so dear to his heart. It's as if he can't take a breath And lift his quill from the parchment until he has borne his heart for this fledgling congregation. His words are filled with human emotion. And this is why we began by reminding ourselves of the sovereign, unchanging will of God that unfolds through dynamic choices and experiences of his creatures. The unchanging will of God unfolds through our dynamic choices and experiences. It doesn't seem static to us at all, and it's not. Because it is fresh and it's new and we're living moment by moment and we do not see the ends. Only God sees the ends. So this is my point this morning. If acknowledging God's sovereignty leads you to a stoic resignation of determination, you have not understood the scriptures. And so with this in mind, let's read those first two verses again. Therefore, when we could uh, bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind in Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker, in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in your faith. You know, we've talked about this before, but sometimes things lose something in the translation. And if you could read this from the Greek text, you could see the emotion with which Paul writes. And So we'll get into that in just a moment. But our text here begins with the word therefore. And if you remember your grammar lessons, whenever we see the word therefore, we're supposed to ask... What's it there for, right? Well, at the end of chapter 2, the Apostle Paul describes his anguish that he experienced when he was forced to leave these saints before he was ready to go. It was like having a precious infant ripped from the arms of a loving parent. And he makes it clear that though he couldn't be with them in person, though he couldn't see them face to face, they were always on his heart. You know, Tony Bennett may have left his heart in San Francisco, but the Apostle Paul left his in Thessalonica. (laughs) He longed to be back with them. He longed to see them face to face. And as he explains to them time and again, he made plans to return to them, but Satan always prevented it. And then he reinforces just how much they mean to him. They are his hope and his joy. His crown of reward, their fruit of his ministry that God entrusted to him. And he rejoiced in their faithfulness in the face of persecution and thereby expects them to be a part of that crown he's given that he will cast at the Savior's feet. Well, it's at this point then that comes, therefore. Therefore, when I could bear it no longer, I took what might be considered drastic action. Now, that's my paraphrase, and I think it'll make sense if we briefly rehearse the chain of events that led up to this moment. As we noted earlier, the Apostle Paul arrives in Thessalonica having just been freshly beaten and jailed and thrown out of Philippi. But after three Sabbaths of preaching in the synagogue, the Jews banish him from there. And a short time later, these jealous and angry Jews organize a mob, they bring false charges against Paul, and they prompt city officials to threaten these newly converted followers of Christ. So these are the circumstances that forced Paul's premature departure. He and Silas then travel to Berea, and Timothy, however, isn't mentioned, and I'm going back and referencing the book of Acts here. So this suggests that Timothy was somehow able to remain under the radar. The Jews, you see, had Paul in their crosshairs. They weren't nearly as interested in his fellow laborers. And so this may explain why the Apostle Paul chooses Timothy to return to Thessalonica on that reconnaissance mission. In any case, Timothy joins Paul and Silas in Berea where the preaching of the gospel resulted in many coming to faith. But those Jewish enemies in Thessalonica couldn't stand to see the Apostle Paul spreading this gospel. So they followed him there, and they began to stir trouble up for him once again and forcing him to leave. From Acts, we learn that he's escorted to uh, uh, Athens, but leaving Silas and Timothy behind with instructions to join him as soon as possible. And whenever they catch up with Paul in Athens, he sends Silas on some undisclosed mission. That's what we can assume from harmonizing the two texts. So now it's just he and Timothy here in this center of pagan idolatry. It's at this point that the Apostle Paul's anguish gets the better of him. He's weary of making plans only to see them fail. Satan kept putting obstacles in his way, and God had not to this point overruled the evil one. But it had been so long since the apostle had seen them, and everywhere he went, he was met by people who were talking about how Paul, through his preaching, a number of Thessalonians had turned from worshiping idols to serve the true and living God. But that was hearsay. He hadn't heard from them directly, And he didn't know how they were doing now. He knew that he left them behind in less than ideal circumstances. And there had been no direct line of communication with them since. And he was concerned about them. It was eating him up. He had had enough. This is what he says. He could bear it no longer. And Paul's language paints a graphic picture. Let me give you a literal translation of the word. It's something like, I could no longer contain myself. It's not often we think of the Apostle Paul this way, is it? As someone who could not contain himself. He was burdened over these saints' welfare. It is as if he had been holding all of this anguish inside. And at long last the dam broke and a torrent of emotion came gushing out. Paul could stand it no longer. The separation anxiety was getting the better of him. He was desperate to know how they were doing. What if they were getting discouraged? What if they were vacillating, hearing all of these rumors that are false about who I am and why I was there? And even if they were standing firm, they would no doubt benefit from a comforting word of admonition. And since the Apostle Paul had to leave so soon, surely there were areas that needed shoring up. So all of this weighed heavily on the Apostle Paul. And Paul's heart is seeking relief. So he says, so what if I'm left alone? I don't care. I can't go on like this. Now, I'm paraphrasing, but in effect, the Apostle Paul is saying, enough is enough. I can't get back. So I'm going to send someone in my place, even if that means I will be left alone in this capital city of idolatry. Now, why is being left alone such an issue? Paul makes a point to say that he was left alone. Well, it appears from everything we can find reading the scriptures that the saints were uneasy with leaving Paul by himself. They always wanted those who would accompany him. Others seemed to take journeys on their own, but Paul's companions were apprehensive about leaving him alone to do the same. And I can see why this would be a concern. For one thing, Paul was not particularly strong and robust. You might think he was after you read read the scriptures and find out all that he endured, but that's not what the scriptures say. Scripture acknowledges that he was weak of frame, and that he suffered from physical ailments. And that aside, he was on the Jews' most wanted list. To them, he was enemy number one. And so you see, to be left alone was dangerous because he was the one with a target on his back. But Paul says, I'm willing to be left alone, left behind, here in Athens. I'll survive. And what's more, it seems that he was the one Satan was hindering from returning because Timothy is allowed to get through. Well, Paul's willingness to be left behind at Athens alone is a testimony to his resolve. His language suggests that both he and Timothy considered this plan less than ideal, but it looked to be the best course of action if the apostle was going to have any relief. And again, he said, I can stand it no more. I can take it no longer. And the fact that he was willing to put himself at risk for the sake of the Thessalonian saints shows just how deeply he cared for them. You know, that's the way it is with us, isn't it? When we're separated from people we truly love, people who are embedded in our lives, people whose tentacles reach into our lives, we're attached, we're connected And when we're apart for a period of time, our heart longs for reunion. That's the Apostle Paul. Now, if you remember, when I began this series, I said this is one of those rare letters, to a church at least, where the Apostle Paul wears his heart on his sleeve. He's already told them how he cared for them like a doting mother tends for a nursing infant, and how he admonished them like a loving father trains his children. And so indeed, we see the emotion of the Apostle Paul on full display here. Now I want you to add to this thought then the fact that if anyone was convinced that God was in control of all things, it was the Apostle Paul. Amen. He penned one of the clearest and most uh, direct statements about God's sovereignty over whatsoever comes to pass. Romans 9 is a death knell to those who believe that there is free will to do whatever you please, that you can come to Christ on your own, or that things just randomly happen. They do not. They are all a part of God's determined plan. Nonetheless, you see, this is the Apostle Paul, and he believes this dearly, and he knows this. He takes this to heart. It's the same Apostle who assures the Romans that God is working all things together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. All things. He's working all things. That means that Paul has to look at Satan's hindrance of him getting back to Thessalonica as God working all things for the good of his people. So he knows that God ordains, what is happening. But it doesn't make him a passive stoic. He wasn't a fatalist. We are called to a life of spiritual warfare, and the Apostle Paul fought it valiantly. He didn't give up at the first sign of opposition. He knew that even the painful moments of serving God were bringing about his good purpose. But here's the point. And this is is what I want you to take away this morning. Knowing that everything that occurs is a part of God's unalterable plan gives us comfort and assurance of victory. But it doesn't isolate us from the experiences of pain and suffering as we navigate the spiritual battleground of this present evil age. Two truths hanging together. God's unalterable plan is being worked out. That should give us comfort and assurance of victory in the end. But that does not insulate us, does not keep us from experiencing the pain and suffering of this world as we navigate the spiritual battleground of this present evil age. You know, whenever the Apostle Paul was without food, he felt the pangs of hunger. When he was stoned and left for dead, he felt the blow of every rock. When he was beaten, he felt the sting from every lash of the whip. When he was shipwrecked and grasping for driftwood in the middle of the deep, day and the night in the sea, I'm sure he shivered in the cold and he suffered fatigue as he tried to hang on. But in this passage, we see also his emotional pain, and it's just as real. His emotional pain is just as real. Even though God was working his good purpose in both Paul and in the Thessalonians, the separation anxiety he suffered from was real. And I'm going to ask you this. Does the word anxiety strike you as a bit odd with regard to the Apostle Paul? I mean, after all, isn't he the one who told the Philippians, be anxious for nothing? Yes, But Paul himself was often plagued with anxiety. It's not my assessment. That's what he says. When he was writing to the Corinthians, he lists all those things he had to endure in the course of his ministry. Those beatings, that stoning, the imprisonments, the shipwrecks, the assassination attempts, the perils of nature, and so on. And then, as if that's not enough, he said, I daily suffer anxiety over all the churches. It's often translated cares in that particular passage. But it is the exact same Greek word Paul uses when he says be anxious for nothing. So what gives? You might ask, doesn't Paul practice what he preaches? Well, he said he did. Follow me as I follow Christ. In fact, he often encourages the saints to follow his example. And he did so in chapter 1, if you'll remember, of this letter. So it's this true even now. So are there different kinds of anxiety? That's what we next have to ask. Is there such a thing as godly anxiety? Yes. Yes, there is. What Scripture condemns, and this is important, I hope you grasp this, what Scripture condemns is self-centered anxiety. Anxiety over one's own situation. And that's what Paul is talking about to the Philippians. Why were those saints anxious? Well, we learned earlier in that book that they were acting out of selfish ambition and empty conceit. We learned that they were seeking their own interests and neglecting others. That's what God forbids. So scripture then condemns that kind of self-obsessive anxiety. Scripture also condemns the obsessive worry over earthly provisions. Jesus himself warns against this kind of anxiety in Matthew chapter 6. He says, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink or what you will wear. Trust in God. So you see, the anxiety condemned in scripture is self-centered anxiety. The anxiety that stems from the fear that we're not in control. Well, let me settle that once and for all. You're not. I'm not. And we never have been ever. Well, just as scripture condemns self-centered anxiety, it does command us, on the other hand, to be concerned, to be deeply concerned about the needs and struggles of others. In fact, the passage in Philippians tells us to consider others better than ourselves. When I was teaching Greek at a local seminary here, I gave this particular passage out of Philippians for them to translate and I remember a student coming back and him, the very first thing, saying, I have never heard this preached in my life. He was shocked to know that what God expects of us is something he had never been able to do and wasn't sure he would ever be able to do. Well, you see, that's the standard of perfection, isn't it? That's the mark to which we look. That's the mark to which we strive. And by God's grace, occasionally, it will happen here and there. Usually when we're not thinking that we're doing it. Right? But nonetheless, that's what the scripture says. That we should be considering others as better than ourselves. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 25, Paul says we should all have the same care, the same level of anxious concern one for another. It's the same Greek word. The same level of anxious concern one for another. You know, we do, not, uh, we, we do not do anything at all for those for whom we have no concern. We never do for those for whom we have no concern. And while God cares for his people, I want you to know we may be the instrument that he will use to supply somebody's need. Or to come alongside and bear them up when they're weak. God uses his people as his vessels. Now, if you're wondering what this looks like then, Paul explains how his anxious concern for others is exhibited. He weeps with those who weep. He rejoices with those who rejoice. He tells the Corinthians, who is weak and I am not weak. In other words, he feels the very empathy, deeply, strongly feels what they feel. He says, who is made to fall, and I am not indignant and distressed by it. That's how his anxious concern was shown for others. But, having said that, and please listen, we must be watchful of our own hearts. This anxious concern for others is not a call for us to take matters into our own hands and try to fix the situation. We're fixers, aren't we? Show me a problem, and I'll fix it. I'll take care of it. Well, that's a big problem, isn't it? Because what happens to us is that we start by looking at what the Word of God says, and oh, we'll, we'll do this. This is how we'll apply that to the situation. But that doesn't seem to work. I said seem to work. Remember, God is working all things according to his purpose and his will. It doesn't seem to work, so then we begin to Innovate. <laughs> We try novel things. And let me warn you, that will only lead you into error. That will only lead you astray. Our anxious concern must not drive us to take control. It should drive us to the one who is in control. So what does that look like? As my father was fond of telling us, anxiety is a call to prayer. And whether it's selfish anxiety or godly anxiety, it doesn't matter. The remedy's the same. Commit the matter to prayer and trust in the Lord. I mean, that's how Paul tells us to deal with all anxiety in Philippians 4. Instead of being anxious about all things, he says, Instead, go before the Lord in prayer with thanksgiving. Make your definite request known to Him so that the peace of Christ will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. You know, we see Paul practicing this in his letters. What did he do with his anxiety over the churches that so overwhelmed him day by day? day? First of all, he prayed for them. I mean, this is what he tells the churches to whom he writes. I always remember you in my prayers. I unceasingly make mention of you in my prayers. And then he encourages and admonishes them with the word of God. And finally, he obediently takes whatever action that scripture requires, leaving the results in the hands of the Lord. We can do no other. Paul knew he could not make the Galatians repent. He knew he could not make the Corinthians repent. All he could do was tell them what God said and pray for them. And we have every indication that the Lord then worked in their hearts. You can't convince anyone to repent. You never will be able to. Only the Holy Spirit, through God's word, will convict the hearts of his people. As we close this morning, let me just offer a little perspective on an issue with which we struggle that kind of plays off of this very theme that we've been looking at this morning. You know, we often remind you from this pulpit, that we are to be led by God's word, not by how we feel. Mm -hmm. And it's true. However, on the same token, we are not called to be emotionless stoics. Stiff upper lip. Well, if you apply that as determination, that's one thing. But if by that you mean that I'm just, I've just resigned to whatever happens. I'm not going to show any emotion. Nothing's going to bother me. You've taken that wrongly. God gave us emotions. He gave us the ability to feel. And because this is a rebellious world of sin, we're meant to feel a certain amount of pain. We're going to see Paul talk about that more as we progress in Thessalonians. This is pain caused by the corruption of sin but please hear me. Here is the incalculable blessing in all of this. Having lived through this life, experiencing pain and suffering, we cannot even begin to imagine how glorious it will be when the sweet relief overwhelms us as the Lord wipes every tear from our eyes. Oh, what joy will be ours When we look at Christ as He drives the final nail into the coffin of death and He overcomes it forever, and death shall be no more. How exhilarating it will be when we are finally, fully, completely released from the burden of sin and we experience the sweet relief of God banishing pain and grief forever. We will know what that means. We will have lived through the worst of it, and we will now know the joys of the glory of his salvation. And this is why eternity itself will never be enough time to exhaust the praise and worship due to our holy and Lord of glory. This is what we have to look forward to when our Savior returns and makes all things new. Should this not help us bear up under the pain and suffering here and now, knowing that it is short-lived, there is an end to it all. And we will rejoice in the salvation of our God, in the deliverance of his people, and we will know joys forevermore. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. So indeed, may we look forward to when our Savior returns and makes all things new. This is how we are to live our daily life, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And so may our God grant us the grace to live in this blessed hope until that final day. And to our God be all glory forever and ever. Amen.